Let's dive into God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20 is where we are. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. As you're turning there, I'll remind you guys, there's only a couple more copies of this resource um, that Lauren Frith and many of the other life group directors put together. Um, a resource to help you both study and reflect on God's word um, individually, but most importantly in community. So if you're not a part of a life group yet, um, that same QR code that Reve mentioned, fill it out. We'd love to connect you with other brothers and sisters who could walk with you through First Timothy, but this is a resource to do that. Um, you can find them at the bookstore uh, in the lobby, after which we only have a couple dozen more, as I said. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. You remember our author is the Apostle Paul. Um, we refer to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as the pastoral epistles. It's a little misleading because Timothy and Titus weren't pastors so much as we think of them today. As I mentioned last week, um, they're better understood to be apostolic delegates. Uh, they, they're better understood to be missionaries who are a part of the Apostle Paul's missionary team. Um, and Paul would send these guys where he could not be so that they could t continue to be an extension of his leadership even when he was absent. Uh, so we're going to see him say here to Timothy, stay in Ephesus. I'm not ready for you to leave yet. I need you to stay there and continue to minister. Um, so Paul is writing to Timothy, but also through him writing to the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was ministering. So it's a letter to him individually, but also to the church as a whole. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. Um, I am not concise enough to be able to get all the way through verse 20, so we're really only going to focus on verses 3 through 17. Sorry about that, but I uh, would love to talk more about it later if you have questions about those last few verses. But I'll read these for us. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, these things which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might put on display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1985, the world's best-selling soft drink was Coca-Cola. More cans, more bottles, more fountain drinks were filled with Coke than any other brand. However, for the 15 years leading up to 1985, Coca-Cola had steadily been losing market share to its rival, Pepsi-Cola. During that time span, Pepsi had launched an effective marketing campaign called the Pepsi Challenge, in which consumers would take blind taste tests and then find out that they actually preferred Pepsi over Coca-Cola. And I'm sure that the Pepsi marketers conveniently only recorded and then showed the ones who actually did prefer Pepsi. But however it happened and however it came across, it was so successful that Pepsi felt they could then dub themselves the Pepsi generation because they were the more preferred and cooler option. So in 1985, Coca-Cola executives then decided we have to do something different. We have to do something else. And what they decided to do was change the recipe for Coca-Cola. And what they came up with, can you believe it, was new Coke. And the hope was that with something novel, with something offbeat, they could then win back some of their recently lost market share to Pepsi. But it was, and many of you know who lived through it, a complete failure. Almost instantly, stock prices for Coca-Cola dropped while Pepsi ascended. Within weeks of the announcement, the company was fielding thousands of angry phone calls a day, forced to hire hundreds of extra operators, because faced with the strength of its competitor, Coca-Cola forgot to keep the main thing the main thing. The one thing that had been its North Star, the one thing that had been its driving force, its reason for existence, they deviated from. And it was a disaster. Well, what about us as a church? What happens when we shift from center? What happens when we alter the gospel? You know, very often when the Apostle Paul writes one of his letters, he begins with this positive, encouraging, almost flowery word to whoever he's writing to. It's kind of a respectful formality to begin letters that way. For example, he starts off his letter to the Corinthian church 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, he says to them, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says to the Thessalonian Christians, we give thanks to God always for you, continually mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Christ. Again, it's just this nice word of encouragement and thanksgiving before he starts out his letter, before he gets into what he really wants to say. You may experience this too when you're writing an email to someone. Before you, before you write what you really want to write, you may say, hey, Bob, I hope you're doing well, or I hope you're having a good week. And then you write why you're really writing. It's a customary formality kind of a way to be polite. That's what Paul does as he begins his letters, usually. Usually. But there's a couple of times when Paul skips all of that and gets straight to business. One of those times is in his letter to the Galatian church. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, verse 6 really being the first verse of the body of the letter, Paul starts out saying to the church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you are turning church to a different gospel. So in this letter, there's no thank you, you're awesome, God is great. No. This time, Paul gets straight to it with the Galatians. I am shocked. You are so quickly deserting Christ and turning to a different gospel because when it comes to this issue of losing focus on the gospel, when it comes to this issue of not keeping the main thing the main thing, Paul has a lot of urgency. And there is no time for opening words of encouragement and thanksgiving and being polite. That's the sort of way he starts off his letter to the Galatians, and it happens in this letter to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. He starts off the body of his letter in verse 3 saying, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, Timothy. Because you've got to urge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, I meant to say this up front to kind of give you a heads up. But doctrine is one of those words that theologians use because they want to make themselves feel smart by using words that we don't normally use and understand. Doctrine simply means teaching. Uh, I hate to be judgmental of theologians and why they do this, but... That's the only thing I can think of, is they just want to sound smart, right? Because they could very easily have translated this teaching. Doctrine means teaching. And Paul is saying there are certain persons within the Ephesian church teaching something different. He is aware there is being something different taught than the gospel that they were originally founded on. So he skips all of the flowery, positive opening words of encouragement, and he gets right to it. Timothy, you've got to stay in Ephesus. You've got to charge them not to teach any different doctrine. He has too much urgency. There's too much at stake to waste words with. I hope you're having a good day. No, he just comes right out with it. Here's what I want to say. We are losing our center. The main thing is becoming a tertiary thing. And another thing is taking its place. You can't let it happen, Timothy. 
Instead, you've got to hold fast the gospel. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the central thing central. This is Paul's message to Timothy at the very start of the letter, and it remains so if we look at the last few verses of the entire letter. If we look at the last couple of verses, chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, Timothy receives this final charge from Paul. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. You can feel the desperation and the urgency, and that O is really in there. It's a big capital Omega right before he says Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. The deposit here being a deposit of truth, a deposit of gospel teaching that Paul had handed down and entrusted to Timothy. He says it's got to be guarded. It's got to be held on to. Otherwise, another teaching will come in and take its place. A different doctrine will slide in. Someone will want to create a new Coke. And it'll be a disaster. (laughs) We will look as foolish as Coca-Cola did. So that's the question that we're going to work through most of this chapter with. We're going to be asking ourselves, what happens when we as a church faithfully, steadfastly hold to the gospel? What are the good results of staying laser-focused on the good news of Jesus as handed down to us by the apostles? First, we find out that faith and love abound. Hold fast to the gospel because faith and love will abound. So looking back at verse 4, we get our first clue as to what this different doctrine is that he mentions in verse 3. He says, urge them not to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, Paul doesn't expand on what these myths are. We don't know exactly what these endless genealogies are he's referring to. But regardless, we do know that they are speculations. They were conjectures. They were not teachings built on the stewardship of God that is by faith. And the stewardship of God just being another way that Paul describes the gospel truth that both he and Timothy had been entrusted with, to be a steward of, to be an agent of. Paul is saying God has revealed to us gospel teaching about who he is, about what he's done through Christ, about how we can be saved through faith in Christ. He has made us stewards of that revelation. But that's not what these certain persons are teaching. The different doctrines they are teaching promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God. Now you may think, man, this sounds pretty negative. Sounds kind of harsh and unloving of Paul to call out false teaching like this. But he's going to say it's actually the opposite. In verse 5, he continues, he says, The aim of our charge is love. The aim of what we preach is love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, When we hold fast the gospel, when we faithfully preach and teach the grace of God in Christ, the end goal is love. 
The aim of our charge is love. And the reason what we teach creates love is because through the gospel, people's hearts are cleansed of sin and shame. They receive a pure heart and people are given a good conscience so they can start to live with integrity and people develop sincere faith. Not hypocritical, double-minded, faking it. When we truly preach Christ, people can sincerely believe in Christ. But a purified heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, none of that comes from another teaching. Hearts remained darkened, consciences stay corrupt, faith is fake, and there's no love. If we want our churches to be communities of love, if we want those we disciple to be people of love, we must hold fast to the gospel charge. We must not promote myths and speculations. We must promote the stewardship of God handed down to us in the gospel of Christ. In 1989, the rock and roll musician Lenny Kravitz released an album called Let Love Rule. And the title track from that album went by the same name, Let Love Rule. And here are the lyrics from it. Love is gentle as a rose. Love can conquer any war. It's time to take a stand. Brothers and sisters, join hands. We got to let love rule. Love transcends all space and time, and love can make a little child smile. Can't you see? This can't go wrong. But we got to be strong. We can't do it alone we got to let love rule. Now, I don't mean to pick on Lenny Kravitz. Uh, Many other musicians have wrote similar songs to this, and he is an incredible musician and performer. And there is even something that resonates with me within this song. As a Christian, I do believe that all people were made by a loving God in order to experience his love and in order to grow into being loving people. So it makes sense that we as his creatures would enjoy singing songs about love. But also, within this song, there's just kind of this bare, simplistic appeal to love. It's not tied to any God. It's not connected to any greater truth claim, certainly not in the way that MLK's speeches and writings were. Instead, this song is just kind of like, we should love because love. And in the end, I think the song is as powerless to actually make us loving people. It's as powerless as the myths and speculative teaching that were infecting the Ephesian church. Again, all respect for Lenny Kravitz. I'm sure he's a good dude, and I really enjoy his music. But if we want to create a truly loving community, we must hold fast to the gospel. The aim of our charge is love. When we fulfill our gospel charge, sharing who Jesus is, sharing what he's done, then lives are transformed. Hearts are cleansed. Consciences are strengthened. Loved is lived out. Church, this is the stewardship that God has entrusted to us. This is the stewardship that has been handed down to us, that God became a person in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God has come to us in the flesh, in Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus lived a perfect life of love, showing compassion to the broken, extending mercy to outcasts. Never was there a more compellingly loving person than Jesus. And then in this most 
dramatic display of sacrificial love, Jesus laid down his life for us on the cross, taking upon himself our sin and shame. And now he's risen from the grave, ascended to heaven, and he continues to pursue us in his love by the Holy Spirit. Church, when we believe that message, when we become a follower of Jesus, then we have reason to love. Then we have power to love. Then we know the God who is love. So church, let's hold fast the gospel so that we will become a people of faith and love. That's the aim of our charge. If we believe the gospel, if we've got airtight theology and we are not a loving people, it is all in vain. The aim of the gospel charge is love. So let's hold fast to the gospel. Secondly, the apostle says, when we faithfully hold to the gospel, sinners are saved. Hold to the gospel so that sinners may be saved. So continuing in verse 6, Paul brings up another aspect of different doctrine being spread among the Ephesian church. And it was the Old Testament law. Now, not that there's anything wrong with the Old Testament law, but rather, as Paul will say, these teachers were using the law incorrectly. So let's look back at verse 5 again. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love, issuing from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. However, verse 6, certain persons are swerving from these. They've wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, not understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So again, it's somewhat difficult to understand the nature of this false teaching, like what do the myths and endless genealogies have to do with the law? It's hard to say, but these teachers were using God's law in the Old Testament without understanding what they were saying. In other words, Paul says these guys are ignorant. Even though they make confident assertions, they are incorrect assertions. And then starting in verse 8, we perhaps start to get a clue as to the incorrect way they were using God's law. Because Paul says there, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So Paul says that whereas these false teachers are without understanding in what they are saying about the law, We do understand that the law is not laid down for the just. So perhaps it seems that these false teachers were teaching God's law as a way for us to be right before God. Like if we follow the Ten Commandments, if we do what God's law says, then we'll be just. But the apostle says here the law is not laid down for the just. Instead, the law was laid down to show us that we are not just. In other words, God's law is not a ladder that we climb to heaven. Rather, the law is a mirror that reveals the stain of sin in our lives. The law was not laid down for the just. No, it was laid down for sinners to show us that we are sinners so that we will be humbled and feel our need for deliverance. I don't know about you guys, but my my default mode in life is to never comb or fix my hair. My default mode in life is never to shave. I don't know if you guys know anything about the Enneagram. 
I am a number nine, and that just means I kind of let life happen to me. I just kind of go with the flow. And one of the ways that expresses itself is my hair. I just go with the flow. However I wake up is however it's going to look. You can ask my wife. I hate having to put my hair, uh, to wet my hair, to put gel in, to find a comb, buy razors, get shaving cream, cut with the grain, cut against the grain, take so much time, make a mess. I hate it. So if my wife and mirrors did not exist, I would never fix my hair and I would never shave. This is not default CT right here. This is me making a lot of effort because each morning I walk in the bathroom, I look in the mirror, and it tells me the truth about myself. It tells me that I look distractingly disheveled. And my wife is not going to approve of the way I appear. Paul says that's a key function of the law. So many people, basically every other religion, have some sort of law that they view as a ladder. There are even secular codes that wouldn't even consider themselves a religion. But if you do this, you'll be successful. If you do that, then you'll be happy. All these things that we can't ultimately add up to, the ladder always breaks, leaving us broken. But that's the way we naturally want to view rules. That's the way we naturally want to view the law as a ladder to climb to reach God or success, however you define it. But the Apostle Paul is saying here, rather, that the law acts as a mirror, revealing the truth about us, that each of us, in our own way and in any number of ways, have not lived the way God would have us live. We have not been who God created us to be. And we don't need more rules. We don't need good advice. We need salvation. And that's exactly where Paul turns, starting in verse 12. And he uses his own experience to exemplify salvation and how we are in need of it. He says there, I thank him who has given me strength. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because... Now, it's important how he finishes this sentence. Is it, I received mercy because I obeyed God's law? Is it, I received mercy because I tried to be a good person? Is it, I received mercy because I turned my life around, started going to church, got things in order? No, it's none of that. He says, I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. In other words, God had mercy on me while I was still ignorant. God had mercy on me while I was still unbelieving, blaspheming, persecuting, insolent opponent to God and his purposes. Because of all those things, he had mercy on me. In other words, he had mercy on me because he had mercy on me. This is Paul's way of saying, the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that I needed to be saved from. Salvation is of the Lord. The only thing we contribute is the sin that we need to be saved from. So thinking about these verses got me thinking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. (laughs) And how it is the most anti-gospel song. (laughs) After the last service, a very kind lady gave me a different interpretation that's 
not as disfavorable as mine, but so there's, you know, there's more ways to interpret it than this, but I got this stuck in my head earlier in this week, and I was like, I'm getting this into the sermon somehow. <laughs> so roll with it. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw him, you would even say it glows. All the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names, and they wouldn't let poor Rudolph play in any of the reindeer games. But then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Then how the reindeer loved him. And how they shouted out with glee, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, you'll go down to history. So think about this. And this is why I call it an anti-gospel song. At first, Rudolph's friends reject him. They ridicule him. They ostracize him from their reindeer games. But then, when he proves he's worthy, when he proves he's useful, then all of a sudden, his friends gleefully accept him. But it's only then he had to make himself acceptable. He had to make himself worthy. Friends, that is not the gospel. Paul says that his experience of receiving mercy was when he was still unbelieving, when he was still blaspheming, when he was still opposing God. Paul did not do anything to prove his worthiness when God saved him. He was just as broken as he had ever been. And yet, not only did he receive mercy, he goes on to say that the grace of Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As far away from God as Paul was, as dark of a place as Paul was in, Jesus came to him not with some mercy, but with superabundant, overflowing, inexhaustible grace. And then he reaffirms in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. Jesus did not come to save righteous people. He did not come to save people who didn't need to be saved or at least didn't think they needed to be saved. Jesus came to save people who need to be saved, who know they need to be saved. He didn't come to save people who have proved their worthiness through what they can do, like Rudolph with his friends. He came to save those of us who have looked in the mirror of God's law and over and over and over seen how we've blown it and failed to be who he created us to be. And Paul says that he's the worst of all of us. Even as an apostle, even as a former expert in the law, even as one who was entirely proficient in following the rituals of Judaism, he says, I am the foremost sinner. Not I was. He says, I still am. At the time of this writing, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I am the foremost sinner. He says, I'm still a broken man, foremost of all, in need of God's grace. Are you starting to feel that? Are you starting to sense that? That if you get real honest with yourself and start it to look into the mirror of God's righteous requirements that you are a sinner, I want to say to you, welcome. Welcome. We are those who submit to apostolic teaching. The head of the apostolic teachers was the Apostle Paul, and he says, I am the first sinner. You are in good company, fellow sinner. Through saving Paul, as he says in verse 16, God was making an example of him. 
through saving Paul, the foremost of sinners, Jesus was putting on display his perfect patience for those of us who would believe. His point is that if God can put up with Paul, he can put up with anybody. If Jesus can forbear and long-suffer and show patience with Paul, he can do the same for you and me. So here's the takeaway. Unlike Rudolph with his friends, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. But like Paul, we don't have to make ourselves acceptable to God. He will receive us just as we are, broken, needy, desperate, defiled sinners. We are who Christ came into the world to save. And so I urge you, open your heart to receive his overflowing mercy. See yourself not simply as a sinner. See yourself as one who Jesus can happily put up with. See yourself as one of those for whom Jesus says, I am patient. He's like, is your life jacked up? Now the apostle Paul, he gave me fits, but you, oh sinner you may be, failures you may have, shame you may feel, but you are just who I came to save. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Do you hear him calling? Do you hear him prompting? Do you hear him knocking on the doorstep of your heart? Come. Come. Sinner you may be, but Savior I am. Open your heart to receive him. Church, that is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. All of that that I just said about God's mercy and Jesus' sacrifice, that is the good news of grace. That is the message that saves sinners. If we want to see more and more and more people saved, we must hold fast to that gospel. That God is not like Rudolph's friends, waiting for you to prove your worthiness. No, he will receive you just as you are broken and sin-stained and shame-covered church. Let's guard that message. Let's devote ourselves again and again to gospel teaching. It was April of 1983 when New Coke hit the shelves. And as I said, it was a total failure. And it took three months for the executives in the Coca-Cola headquarters in Atlanta to repent I'm sure from those corporate offices, they ripped open their white button-up shirt, repenting in dust and ashes. What have we done? So just three months later, they took all the new Coke off the shelves, and they made the main thing the main thing again. And when they rebranded it, they did it in such a way that they wouldn't forget. They called it Coca-Cola, the original the true, the classic, the thing that leads to our flourishing. And so it is today. Coca-Cola, still number one. And so it is with the gospel. We must stay crystal clear on the gospel. We must submit ourselves to scriptural teaching. We must dig into the Bible ourselves in order to guard the gospel so that faith and love will abound, so that sinners may be safe. I pray it would be so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.